Lupusinus, who is a little bit the worse for wear on drink at this point in the party, loses his rag completely and demands that his soldiers round up the two kings, take them in, into custody, kill their men, and he just he panics and makes the most god-awful decision ever made, I think, in probably late Roman history. Hello and Happy New Year to all you listeners. And for those in Iran and China, I'll get to you in February and March. I don't know if you've noticed the new logo, but I've had a new one created at vast expense. I think it looks very fetching and you don't have my ugly mug on it anymore. So don't be alarmed that you've seen a change. Today's pod is with Simon Turney, a best-selling writer, and I'm discussing the Gothic Wars and historical fiction and history writing in general, as well as Viking drink preferences. Coming up, I've got the Mau Mau Uprising, a chat on Masters of the Air, the new TV series from the makers of Band of Brothers in the Pacific, a chat on Pearl Harbor, and much more. Please share, rate, and review if you can, but in the meantime, it's me talking with Simon Turney and the Gothic Wars. Simon Turney, welcome to the pod and thanks very much for joining me. It's a great pleasure to have you on and we're going to be talking about your novel. It is relatively new, but you have written some since, but it is Parabellum. Yes, indeed. And I think it was out in July, wasn't it? I think so, yes. <laughs> July was a bit, a bit of a, a run of uh, festivals, so I was kind of um, blindsided by a lot of things. Right. <laughs> Well, according to the all-seeing God that is Amazon, it says it was out in, <laughs> in July. So it's best we don't ag- disagree with that. Uh, and so for the benefit of our listeners, it's set during the Gothic Wars. And this is, we're towards the end of the fourth century, dear listeners. So this is around, I, I, okay, you're going to pick me up on this. <laughs> But I, I think we're talking the Gothic Wars are three seven five from three seven five. Is that yeah right? three seven six? Yeah three seven six. Right, three seven six. Yes, it, it, there's there's a lead up. So three seven five is quite valid. <laughs> well, it's quite interesting because it'd be good to because your so your novel deals with with uh, a, I know it starts I think in three eight one, um, but it's to do with the. I guess really what we're talking about is the steady but certain disintegration of the Western Roman Empire. Or wait, actually, no, we're in the Eastern Roman Empire, actually, aren't but, we? But it is the disintegration of the West, largely. Yes, it's, it's momentous times, momentous events, and, and a moment of great change. Yes, yeah, so mass migration. That's that's what the main cause of the war, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, essentially. I, I mean, I don't want to give any sort of too much away in terms of the book, but. Essentially, the background, I mean, it's there for anyone to read into its history. It's um, the uh, the Gothic tribes north of the Danube. There's the the Thuringi and um, the uh, the one whose name I've instantly forgotten because I'm being recorded. The Thuringi and the Greythungi, who are who come down to the, the Danube uh, because they're being pressured by the, the onrush of the Huns coming in from the north and the east. And they're seeking uh, sort of safety. They're seeking a place to, to be, to exist. And Rome is beyond the Danube. So they apply to the, the emperor and say, please, can we come? Please, can we settle? And yeah, I mean, that's the start of it all. I mean, it gets horribly complex pretty quickly. But uh, that's it is the mass migration. It's the Huns pushing the Gothic tribes who then, you know, butt up against the Roman Empire. 
and the friction starts. And I guess the temptation is, well, certainly for me, and I'm showing my ignorance here, but the temptation is to kind of dismiss the Huns, the Vandals, the Goths as this kind of mass of savages. <laughs> and that's that's really not right, is it? No, increasingly, as Roman history goes on, um, the, the, the bleed between the, the what they would call the barbarian peoples and the empire itself is is more and more pronounced. So, you, you, I mean, by the by the end, by uh, 410, you've got uh, the, the most senior general in the entire Roman Empire is Stilicho and Stilicho is half half goth. So, I mean, you get these names that uh, Ricima is a Roman general at this time and then Stilicho and these are gothic names. So, I mean, <laughs> there, there is just uh, there is so much sort of similarity in, t in some some ways between the two peoples by that stage. Well, the Goths were very much desperate to become part of the empire to protect themselves from the um, from the Huns, as you say. Why were the Huns were they growing in population? Why were they pushing up against the Goths and therefore the then the Roman Empire eventually? Well, I think that, again, it's it's your migrations. The Huns have come from the east, seeking better better land at the end of the Hunnic invasions. Um, at the, I think it's the Battle of Shalon in the sixth century. The only reason I think that a lot of the a lot of the pressure lifts is because there's uh, there's just not the land. The Huns come from the east, looking for better ground, more lush ground, easier pickings for raids, obviously as well, and they they end up pushing the the Gothic tribes south and and west. Okay, so well, when your book opens, um, and we should mention the the hero of your of your of your book, Flavius. For Carlis, he's a legionary, and he's been involved in in something that will kind of help to start the Gothic War a few years earlier. Is that right? A great calamity, a really, really ridiculously stupid moment in history, triggered by a really ridiculously stupid man in history. Um, and I, I don't think, I mean, again, it's a matter of historical record, so I, I wouldn't say it's uh, giving out any great spoilers if if that story comes out in them in the in this. No, I no, <laughs> not at all. No, no, there's not at all. I, I actually because I was reading into it before this because um, it did th this event, which I'm sure you can describe better than I. But the this event it had a few echoes of what you sometimes see in fantasy based TV shows with a with a, a red wedding. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I, essentially, this, this event, this event is the whole reason I wrote the book. A, a lot of uh, my impetus for writing books comes from stumbling across historical events that I'd previously overlooked or uh, or were fairly obscure or historical characters that are ob obscure and, and interesting. And uh, I mean, it's not that this is a particularly obscure event, but because my focus is usually earlier Imperial Rome or Republican Rome, I'd never really considered writing about it. But I, I just I got reading it one day and I thought, God, that, that's that's a that's a book waiting to happen. I mean, in fairness, Gordon Doherty has already written books about about the era as well. So he's included uh, a lot of these events in, in his series. Um, you and Gordon have got a good relationship. You've written a few books yeah. together, haven't you? Yes, and, and his work is is superb. So, uh, so I don't links, want to. It links are in the show notes. So, sorry, uh, <laughs> links are in the show notes for all the listeners. I should remind them. So you've got, you've got the the Thuringi and the Grifungi. Uh, the Thuringi cross 
the the river they send a message uh, which is delivered to the emperor valens who is in antioch at the time preparing to invade the east saying we need land to settle we are being pressed we want to settle within your lands let us in valens of course uh, uh, there is a tradition of romans letting barbarians settle within their lands they produce uh, you know good farm workers they produce uh, manpower for the military it's quite useful but rome is usually very careful about these things it usually disarms them sets a lot of conditions splits them up so that they you know they can't be a danger of a, of a rising against the empire all these various things unfortunately at this time valens is off in antioch and most of the army is with him there's very little military uh, supporting the, the danube border Valens knows damn well that if if he says no, he's facing a huge invasion of, of Goths across the river because they might take not take no for an answer. So he's kind of pressured. He, he has to say yes. He has to say, by all means, come in. And he gives them very uh, favourable conditions because he's, he's over a barrel. He says, yes, come on in. You can stay together. You can have your land. Uh, we'll feed you until you get yourself settled and we'll sort it all out. He does have what's left of the military stop the Grethungi from crossing the river so that he's only dealing with half the problem at once which is, is sensible but the problem then comes with his lesser officers dealing with the, the the situation in his absence while he's in Antioch because the next thing you get is these the Gothic tribes these Thuringi south of the river in on mass a, a large number of them and they're getting hungry when you have a large influx of people they go through the foodstuffs in that area very quickly um so th they start to starve there are records of them selling their children for dog meat uh to the romans it's it's, it's a horrendous situation and the problem is the idiots in charge at the time uh in the sort of thrace and, and uh the Byzantine area. Byzantine. This is, yeah, this is roughly Romania, Bulgaria, Thrace, yeah. uh, Northern Greece, yeah. more, um, or actually more Bulgaria and Romania. Yeah, Bulgaria, south, south of the Danube, but that, that area, everywhere from Constantinople uh, across to sort of Serbia. Um, this area, uh, the, the, the guy who's in charge, the general in charge of, of settling them is a guy called Lupicinus, um, who I think... Uh, goes up there for top five idiots in Roman history. Because <laughs> um, between right. him and, <laughs> and his, his sidekick... Quite intrigued to know what your other four are. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be one for another day. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the, um, him and his, his, uh, his various sidekicks uh, are horribly corrupt and, and uh, basically uh, sideline a lot of the food that should be going to the Thuringi, sell it on the you know private uh, private sales, and essentially are, are um, stiffing the the Thuringi over what the what the emperor has promised them. They're starving, and he's sort of playing around with it. So they start to get bolshy. They start to get angry. They march south, and when they get to uh, the imperial main imperial city in the area, Marcianople. He invites them to a dinner. He will have a dinner and he will invite, oh, by this time, they've also got the Grethungi coming across the river because they won't be stopped now. So he takes the kings, two kings, senior kings of the Grethungi and the Thuringi, and invites them to a grand dinner in the palace in Marcianople, where they will hammer out uh, all the problems and sort out peace deals. Brilliant. Except for the fact that during that meal, 
the goths outside the walls start to get restive because they're uh, unable to buy food. The Romans won't let them buy food from the local traders. They start to argue, to fight. And um, uh, when, this, this, the, when the, the, the tidings of this reach the, the Lupusinus and his people inside, Lupusinus, who is a little bit the worse for wear on drink at this point in the party, uh, loses his rag completely and demands that his soldiers round up the two kings, uh, take them in, into custody, kill their men, and he just he panics and makes the most god-awful decision ever made, I think, in probably late Roman history. Um, his men attack the, the guards of the two Gothic kings. One of the kings is almost certainly slain because we never hear anything about him from this moment onwards. Uh, the other one, who is Fritigern, who is clearly quite wily, uh, talks his way out of it, blusters his way out of it, essentially threatens them, says, you know, if I don't walk out of here, think what's going to happen outside these walls. So they relent, they let Fritigern go, which is maybe the next bad decision, because the next thing that Fritigern does is start a war that will take place over, over uh, a number of years and will end with an emperor dead on a battlefield. Um, so, yeah, I think this it's, it's, a, it's a really important moment, and it's the turning point, I think, in all... Uh, Romano Gothic politics in the whole system of dealing with the barbarians and the, the start of a decline that, that never really gets arrested. And that's your, the in for your story, that dinner, really, isn't it? It is indeed, yes. Because uh, I, I, the thing is, I looked at it and I thought, yep, yeah, okay, Lupicinus is an idiot. Uh, I'm not going to write anything from his point of view because I don't want to write from an idiot's point of view. Uh, I didn't want to write from the uh, Goths' point of view. Uh, so I thought, well, who else is involved? Well, of course, there's the men who actually do the, the deed for the general. When Lupicinus says, uh, take them, kill these people, who is it who does the taking and the killing? And that's my characters, because uh, these are unsung characters in, in history, but they played a really pivotal role. So I, I wanted them to have their moment. As you said, a lot of your uh, uh, novels are set in the Republic, the fall of the Republic, then the Civil War. The, the early Empire and Principate, yeah. When you when you embark on a kind of new period of history, is this quite a, a kind of daunting prospect for you? Because I get the impression there is very little you don't know about the Roman Empire. <laughs> I wish that were the case. Um I, I'm very conversant with the era from Julius Caesar through to maybe Septimius Severus. I, I get a lot vaguer from the crisis of the third century onwards, um, because really uh, you can study the Roman Empire for, your, for an entire lifetime and there will be many, many things you never get the hang of. There's just so much of it. And, uh, you know, when you're talking about a, a, a civilization that lasted uh, from what 753 BC to 1453 in the end you're only ever going to know parts of it my is as I say largely as you said because um, when Christianity has been made legal but is paganism has not been made illegal so the majority of people are Christian but there are still pagans and everything is legal so it's all around at the time and so it's a really strange time I think Yes, so you've got this clash of, well, I guess, paganism and Christianity. That must make for a, I don't know, is that is that a, a different moral outlook for Romans around this time? Um, ooh, that's a good question. Um, because, of course, 
Christianity at that time is not the Christianity we have now. It's it's not as formalized. It's not as 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 codified. Um, it doesn't have the set church there as we have now. It's it's a much different thing. Um, as is, I mean, evidenced by the fact that at this time there are two great branches of Christianity going on. There's an Aryan and Nicene Christianity, and that, that's also involved in this particular event because the, the Goths and the Emperor who dies are all Aryan Christians, whereas the Empire on a whole is is Nicene Christian. I was uh, interested in your writing career, really, because you, I mean, you've been writing many novels for a long time. You've got you you, you write. You've got a, a, a running series called Marius Mules, which um, which is a great entry point into uh, that. What's the best way? Is that sort of the triumvirate, the first civil war with um, Pompey and Caesar? And... It, well, it, it covers Caesar's, the main period of Caesar's famous life. So uh, Gaul from, all the way. Yeah. Right. Gaul, the civil wars, and then the, the last year or so of... Uh, troubles in rome leading up to his death and and what number are you on with that because that's I, been it is complete uh book 15 uh which deals with the events of the ides of march came out this year on the ides of march ah. uh, <laughs> so now caesar is dead and the series is over i've put the pen down on that one for the last time when did you first start that though uh ooh, i started writing it in 2003 but it didn't come out until 2009 because it spent a lot of time bouncing around between uh, agents and publishers, uh, eliciting very polite no thank you letters uh, <laughs> for quite a long time. Yeah, well, because you have a mix of of self published and published novels, don't you? Or you know, published by a publisher. Yeah, uh, very increasingly fewer of the self published ones now. Now that I've finished Maris's Mules, the only other self published one I deal with is uh, Praetorian. Um, and other than that, everything is through the publishers Canelo and Head of Zeus. Um, and also non-fiction. I've got one through Amberley with non-fiction, one through, uh, one through uh, Pen and Sword coming with non-fiction. Two that were out with Orion some time ago. So I think essentially I'm, uh, I'm playing the field with, with publishers. Well, it's quite um, interesting that because, you know, we deal with th that blend authors. What's your experience between the two? I mean, w was it... Marius Mills is obviously not something you dropped. You wrote 15 of them. So yes. was that just once you started, you couldn't stop? Uh, I think it, it, essentially by the time I got to about book three, and I, I didn't even know whether I'd write a second one, but it, it went down surprisingly well. Um, it took me completely by surprise. A friend of mine, Robin Carter, said uh, when, he, when he first read it, said, why haven't you got this on Kindle? I said, what's Kindle? And he said, put it on Kindle. And then it, I did, and it went, woof, it just took off. That was just at the start of the digital boom. So um, essentially it, it completely took me by surprise. And it was so popular by the time I'd finished the third one that people were clamoring saying, when's the next one coming? When's the next one coming? So, which they've been doing right the way up to the 15th. And even now, now that I've said, that's it, it's done. I get emails probably at least you know five or six emails a week saying when are you continuing it are you going to do Augustan Rome are you going to do uh, the wars with Antony and Cleopatra and so on so I mean I've, I've kept the series up and I've kept it self-published because largely because that's just it's been my baby it's the way it started and I didn't want to relinquish control of that in any way but self-publishing has huge benefits in a lot of ways it gives you a lot of personal control and personal involvement 
it also however takes away any kind of cushion any <laughs> any certainty from it it's, it's a completely uncertain world and i think these days now that um self-publishing is much more common than when i started it's a much bigger thing it's much harder to to break into the market now so but yes i mean it, it certainly has its its benefits but on the other hand so do publishing so yeah. going with with publishers particularly if you choose the right ones i will say um i've had experience with publishers who have been very enthusiastic and it's just sort of fizzled out um, the the guys I'm I'm with at the moment, both Canelo and Head of Zeus, are both hugely enthusiastic about their work. They 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 love books. They love the stories. They they want to get them out. They want to be involved. They want them to be good, and that that's what I like. I like I would hate to be with something that with a company that is corporate over interest. Um, yeah. These guys are interest over corporateness, corporation, corporativeness, whatever it is. But yeah, I, 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 I like to work with people who are enthusiastic, enthusiastic about the subject, uh, and they are. But with self-publishing, do you get um, a more direct contact with your readers? Or it sounds like it's, you know, it's easy to contact you through your whatever means. We've got social media now. Is there any I, I, difference? I, I don't think there is these days. I think there used to be. I think, uh, in, in, again, when I started, when it, back in any time around, probably 2009, when I was really starting properly writing, um, it, it, you know, it, it, the, the traditional authors, you know, Bernard Cornwells and all these sort of people, were very much removed from the reader, I think, uh, that anyone, you know, who, who had traditional publishing deals. Um, because social media wasn't, what it is now and the the need to be out there wasn't there so you had the traditional you know reclusive writer thing going on uh people were allowed to do that i think now if you're a reclusive writer you uh, are risking not selling so many books because people like to to speak to the author now people like to engage to see them to see them at events to be able to talk to them online to even just to discuss i've just read your book oh i think this which is it's great in a way. Sometimes it's frightening, uh, particularly when they're right and you're wrong. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it, it's it's different now. I don't think it's different between self-published or traditionally published. I think it's different now to what it was then. And I think any any writer who really wants uh, wants to to sort of to engage, who wants to know what people think, who wants to well to sell books maybe, uh, needs to be more involved now. Yeah, I, Bernard Cornwall has taken to responding to que questions on his website, and I don't think he needs to sell many more. So, <laughs> uh, but Cornwall yeah. is a nice guy, it has to be said. Oh, he's great. He's absolutely yeah, he's great. And I, I mean, I, he's I was because I, I wanted to ask you about historical fiction because he he's how I got into. I certainly got access to certain periods of history. I mean, the Napoleonic Wars because of him, uh, because of Sharp. But I mean that—that's the—that's the, why historical fiction to me is just—I I love it—is because it's that kind of entry point. Is that you know what do you think is special about historical fiction? Do you think that there's a—I uh, don't know—is—is is it? It's like limitless numbers of uh, periods of history you can write about, aren't there? Yes, uh, there are well, two things I'd like to say. That. First one is yes, as you say, there is always something to write about. There are always stories that want to be told, even from the smallest things. I mean, my uh, my Ottoman Empire series of this, this four Ottoman cycle 
books. They all sprang from one tiny event, which was uh, in 1481, when a church, the Nea Ecclesia in, in Constantinople, uh, now used as a gunpowder store by the Turks since the invasion, uh, detonated in a lightning strike, and bits of it came down on the other side of the Bosphorus, leaving a huge crater. And I thought, what a story! Why does nobody know about this? That needs to be in a book. That's, I think, what historical fiction is. I think it's it's uh, just as I just as as the writer wants to write these stories. I think readers want to know these things. Readers want to 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 see these amazing events. And I, I was at an event on Friday. I was uh, I was talking down in near North, near Northampton and discussing this this very subject with them. And it's amazing how many people I speak to who say I get my history from historical fiction. They say I I don't read textbooks. Textbooks are are too dry. Well, most textbooks, not all, but most textbooks are too dry or don't concentrate on what I'm interested in. Um, but I read historical fiction that way I can really feel like I'm in there, I'm part of the, the subject, and I'm entertained while I'm learning these things. Which also led me to the discussion about the value of historicity in historical fiction, because uh, it's my great belief that uh, any historical fiction has to be uh, fitted in the historical framework as closely as possible. Use real events, use real people, and don't play around with the history. Um, fill in the blanks. I mean, everyone has to fill in the blanks because there are plenty of blanks to fill in. And yes, you can create characters, but not characters that conflict with the history as we know it. Uh, if you start messing around with that, it becomes fantasy, not historical fiction. And that that's interesting because that that's certainly uh, true. You know, you can't you can't start uh, changing years around and, and names and, and places. But you, do you ever find yourself? in a bit of a hole i don't know with say i don't know food or this is a bad example because it's so obvious but you wouldn't put a potato in in the roman empire oh i've, I've been so close to that i'm so close the, the first uh, release of praetorian the first praetorian book i wrote he gets pelted with a tomato i never even thought about it never thought about it i had him pelted with a tomato i got deluged um <laughs> And, you know, in, in a matter of a month, it was back out with pomegranate instead. But <laughs> I mean, I know tomatoes weren't around, but, you know, when you're in the throes of writing, it's Whoa! pelted with a tomato. So it just slipped in. You do, you do. I mean, my latest one is a writing Viking uh, stuff. I've been writing Viking stuff. Actually, fin I wrote the end on book five today. Oh, so, well done. Uh, um, thank you. But. Yeah, reading about the Vikings, because we all think about Vikings. It's a it's a drinking culture and a fighting culture. Everyone wants to see drinking and fighting in Viking stuff. Uh, there's a lot more to it. There's trading, there's religion, there's all sorts. But everyone wants the drinking and the fighting. Um, axe throwing and, and swearing and, and curses and, and uh, you know, axes everywhere. But uh, looking at the Vikings, uh, the first thing I had to think is, what are they drinking? Because for a start, they're not drinking wine. Um, not unless they can get it through, you know, probably through Danish uh, suppliers. They did drink mead. They did drink, um, did drink sort of strange spirits. They drank beer, ale of sorts. But one of the main things they drank was a thing called bland, which is essentially fermented milk. Um, Ooh, I'm that, sure about that, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that had not occurred to me as a thing until until I started going. Oh, yeah, what are they drinking? And started playing around, looking to see what, what the diet was. Um, so yeah, you, you, there's a lot to 
to sort of study and learn. I think the more detail you get and the more you get right, the richer the story becomes. Now, one, one series I wanted to mention that I know made an appearance in, in our um, Book of the Month recently is, your, well, you did a series on emperors who have a bad reputation. Yeah, officially the Damned Empress series. The Damned yes. Empress, that's it, yes. yes. Uh, Commodus, Caligula. Why did you choose to write about these characters? Uh, it actually started, it was it was my um, my agent uh, who started it because uh, I was at the time I was writing Marisid Mules and I was writing Praetorian. I was entirely self-published. And they said, look, we want to get you in with a, with a bigger publisher, but you need something new. We, can, we need a new story. How about tackling a big name? Um, and we threw around a few ideas and Caligula was the name that, that sort of floated to the surface. And I was very, very nervous about doing it because, I mean, it's a huge thing. It's like trying to write I, Claudius. Um, yes. I mean, it is, of all the of all the fiction, maybe the Eagle of the Ninth is, is the other famous one. But so, I, 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 I looked at it and I, essentially I thought, well, what can I do with Caligula that's different? I mean, I don't want it to be Malcolm McDowell in the in the dreadful uh, 70s film. I don't want it to be John Hurt in the... Uh, what, John, it wasn't John Hurt, it was... Um, don't want it to be the, these characters from... from Derek the, the, Jacobi. <laughs> exactly. No, that's Claudius. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't want it to be these characters that are, that are already iconic on the screen, no matter how... Uh, peculiar and lewd and dangerous they are. I wanted something different, uh, something that hadn't been done before. And in my sort of reading around, I came across a, a book uh, by a guy called Alice Winterling, um, which is a, a re-examination of Caligula, um, trying to to find uh, other ex other explanations for what's generally considered his madness and badness. And he does it. He's very, very convincing. His his text is very convincing. And if you, you can, if you believe everything that you read in his text, which is all well backed up, um, it, you, you see a totally different Caligula, uh, not the mad, dangerous. I, I wouldn't say that he was a nice man. He clearly wasn't a nice man. Uh, but I think he was the product of his environment. I think he was perfectly sane. Um, I think he was dangerous and the product of, of, a, of a really dangerous youth. Um, and I wanted that. I wanted to tell the story of a Caligula, a man, not a monster. Um, and it, from there, it, it's gone on. I re-examined Commodus, whose uh, megalomania is, is well-renowned. He named the months of the year after himself, wanted to rename Rome after himself, named the legions after himself. Everything was named after himself. But the more I looked into his uh, history, the more his sort of removal from the public eye, appearing in public in, in the arena, throwing javelins at elephants and so on and so on and so forth, it, it all smacked very heavily of um, bipolar. And I thought, do you know, that explains him a lot better than, oh, he was mad or, oh, he was a megalomaniac. There's, when people make statements like he was mad, there's always a reason. There is no such thing as just mad. There's a reason behind all these things. I just wanted to explore that with him. Um, and then I've done the same. I mean, Domitian, I think, was... Uh, a micromanager, he was the third one I did, uh, a micromanager of, of to the nth degree, 
um, and again, possibly slightly paranoid. Um, I think he was probably registered quite somewhere along the autistic scale. Um, but again, I don't think he was um, dangerously insane or anything like that. I don't think he was evil, as they call him. I think he was maybe he was cruel, but that's not the same thing. Um, and I've just recently done Caracalla. I won't go into that because it's just new. So let people read that one and argue with themselves. But yes. I, I just like to I like to see these people as people rather than monsters or caricatures. Well, yeah, the temptation, I guess, to to judge figures of the past is just well, it's it's a very powerful one because you immediately compare it with today's society and therefore assume that we are far more enlightened and better. <laughs> it's not necessarily the case. No. <laughs> well, the, the other thing about the uh, the emperors who were the, these are guys who were suffered damnatio memoriae after their death, had their names chiselled off things, their coins bent, their portraits bent, their portraits smashed, and so on. Um, the thing about them is all we have uh, in terms of, of accounts of their lives are written by usually two or three sources. Those sources later on in the empire are usually christians writing about pagans and are therefore incredibly skewed in their uh, in their portrayals or earlier on particularly in the terms of, of caligula commodus and uh, domitian they are members of the senate there are people like uh, cassius dio and herodian they're senators and the thing that all those all these damned emperors usually have in common is they were really really vicious to the senate um, so you can expect the history written of their lives to be uh, a little bit vicious. So yeah, I think, yes, you, you have to be able to look past senatorial skewing to see what they actually were like. So Simon, what, what are you working on next? Have you got a new series planned if you've finished Marius Mills now? I'm, I'm actually doing a non-fiction one at the moment on uh, on the, the auxiliary units of, of Roman Britain, which is it's just started, but it's it's getting there. And after that, there's another Praetorian to come. And there's a new series coming out with uh, with Head of Zeus next year. But I've, I'm not at liberty to say what it is mm. yet, but it's Roman. Do you have a preference of writing the two non-fiction or fiction or? Oh, fiction every day. Um, <laughs> quite, quite apart from that, you, you can't do fart jokes and, and blood mizzle everywhere if you're writing non-fiction. But it... <laughs> It's also it's that fear that you've missed something with nonfiction. I think, as I say, with fiction, yes, okay, you, you can't really get away with throwing a tomato at a Roman, but uh, on the whole, a lot of things can. Uh, are, there's a lot of leeway. There's a lot of give in fiction. You can oft, often find ways to explain things in nonfiction. Absolutely, everything has to be up to, particularly in in, in historical nonfiction. Uh, everything has to be archaeologically up to date and research-wise up to date. And the problem is, you know, every month there are new inscriptions unearthed that change what we know about certain things. So you just have to keep have to keep absolutely on the ball. Even in, you know, as I write this, I'm I've covered so many units already i'm on the next unit but I'm, at the end i'm gonna to have to go back and do the units i've already done again just in case knowledge has changed since i started writing the book um <laughs> do, you, do you do you have a feeling of um kind of self-consciousness because often i was listening to a radio radio 4 program where there was a, a historical fiction author and and then neil ferguson the historian was on as well 
And he was being very dismissive of historical fiction, which was out outrageous, <laughs> um, where he basically said, you know, you just make stuff up. And, you know, as we've established uh, speaking to you today, I mean, that's clearly not the case. So but as you've made the transition into the nonfiction field with one, at least one, one done, Agricola and another one to come. Yeah, one to come, yeah. Do you have a kind of introspective look at yourself when you're when you're writing a, a nonfiction? I learn more. I, I did uh, a classics degree and I've learned more writing historical fiction about Rome and the ancient world in general than I ever did at university. In three years of university, I've learned less than I learned in one year writing. It's a constant uh, education. In terms of writing nonfiction, I think it's even more of an education, but it is also more focused because you're dealing with one specific subject. Um, when I did Agricola, everything was focused on the man's life. I you know, hardly stepped outside that particular time zone and the locations where he was involved. Um, but I learned an awful lot about those times and places and people. Um, I think you learn, I think in terms of writing, you learn everything you do anyway. Um, a prime example being, I, I wrote, uh, I kind of forget which one it was, one of the uh, Praetorian novels I wrote. I, it, it, the hero is coming into Rome, and I had him coming in alongside the Aqua Triana aqueduct uh, that comes in uh, from the west, uh, down on the, the, the uh, Trastevere side of the, the river. And I thought, how do I describe it? How big is it? How, you know, how much of it is underground? How much of it is in tunnels? How much of it's on bridges? And I, I thought, you know, I, I don't know enough. And this was, uh, I think this was during COVID or for some reason, there was a reason I couldn't get there to actually go and look at it. I like to go to these places to look at what I'm writing about if I can. But I, I, I thought, right, the Aqua Triana, I need to know where it's visible. And it fortunately is still there in, 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 in one form or another. So, bingo, here we go, Google Street View. Uh, six hours, I think, I was just sat there, wrapped up in, in my PC with Google, following the Acre Triana from its source right the way into Rome, watching every foot of it pass alongside the road as I, as I, as I scrolled, just to see where it's visible, where it's not, what it does. Um, <laughs> in the end, it's one paragraph. In the whole book, it's one paragraph. And it's just scenery as he's walking into town, but it's right. And that I know now, I know that that scene is right, which is great. <laughs> That's great stuff. Well, Simon, this has been fantastic to talk. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. It's been great to talk here. And best of luck with uh, with everything. I mean, there's, you've got many new books coming out, so I'll, I'll stick links in for, for listeners. But yeah, as I say, best of luck. Fabulous. Thank you very much, Ollie. Thank you for listening. And once again, Happy New Year from all of us at Aspects of History. Lots of great history to come, but until then, thank you and good night. <laughs>